0: This is the Nips and Sips Podcast Show, featuring two fellowship-trained, board-certified orthopedic and sports physical therapists. Join us as we talk all things physical therapy, manual therapy, performance, education, research, and of course, Sips. Hey, everyone. This is the Nips and Sips Podcast Show. Uh, Feature me, I'm Dr. Jeremy Boyd and my usual partner in crime over there, Dr. Brandon Cruz. We're going to pick up where we left off uh, last uh, episode where we talked about the examination and uh, evaluation of the overhead throwing athlete, Uh, or really just overhead athletes altogether. And we're going to go roll right into uh, treatment uh, to kind of help all our clinicians around, kind of see where we're coming from, maybe some unique different ideas and kind of get our throwers back in the game quicker. But uh, before I get into it, Brandon, how's it going? Going well over here, Jar. Excited to talk about the second half of, uh,
1: you know, kind of the thrower's paradox or the uh, overhead athlete in, in general. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of it. Uh, what do you got on uh, on drink today?
0: Oh, yeah. So uh, going uh, off my, again, my uh, beer of the month club, uh, this is a uh, smash and grab uh, IPA. Try and get theme here. was like uh, maybe when you do some throw in or athletes you may smash some things or come to smash some lacrosse balls into them so that was a theme there it's from legal draft uh arlington texas which i know baseball is pretty big down there uh and it's a yeah just an ipa and uh i'll give my my rating soon uh this is beard glass i just got in connecticut this weekend with some friends nice little glass but what about you, Brandon? I'll, I'll give the rating as soon as I'm, uh, yeah. so I'm done with this. You,
1: are you, um, that's not, that's an IPA you said? It looks like it'd be a sour beer.
0: It's IPA, yeah. I mean, they got the colors, which looks limey and everything like that, but it's, it's just, uh, I guess it's just IPA. It's a single mop, single hop uh, IPA. So, so it's a smash uh, style. And uh, let's see, strong backbone of malt balances well well with notes from unique hops uh you've got the loot so that's the i guess that's the tagline so i'll uh my first beer that i made was a smash uh my pa so this is interesting very nice good pour yeah look at that better than the the return of manips and sips that one that one went everywhere that sucked but um Definitely can smell ops on this puppy. Oh, not bad. Not too, um, well, I'll say it's like too IPA, too many IPAs. It's just like mm. they all taste the same to me. Um, a little bit lighter. Not bad. Nothing, nothing like mind-blowing or anything like that. A little bit of aftertaste afterwards. Uh I'm gonna give it a seven, flat.
1: All right, yeah.
0: not bad, not, not great,
1: not bad, around the middle.
0: Yeah, yeah, right there. What about you, Brandon?
1: All right, I got the I got the big guns today here.
0: Oh baby, is that t- uh, tequila? Yeah,
1: tequila heredera. Oh, wow. This is from uh, a former intern, actually, from your alma mater, uh, Franklin. Uh, he actually got it engraved as well.
0: Oh shit. So to Dr.
1: Cruz, thanks for all your help, Frank. So I love the bottle. The bottle's that's badass. Awesome. Yeah, it's top flight right here. Yeah. I'm saving this bottle. And then we're gonna fill it up with Costco tequila when I'm done. <laughs> um, so I haven't had it. I'm opening it for the first time. So, Frank, if you're listening, this one's uh this one's to you, bud. Yeah, Yo. he had uh he was a he was a great student, you know. Really, really, you know, we, he showed his evolution from his first, you know, couple weeks all the way to when he finished. And, uh, you know, he's going to be a great therapist. I'll talk to him now. So excited for his future. But thanks for the uh, tequila here. Let's see what we got. Let me put that down right there. box there um, here. Oh, that's smooth. That's a good one. That's uh, uh, it's a Anejo as well.
0: Oh, wow. uh, that's really good, actually. Oh man, he's double sipping. This is gonna be a good episode. Yeah,
1: that's that's smooth, man. That's real smooth. All right. So <laughs> that's my drink for today. All right. Well,
0: cheers to that.
1: Cheers, man. Oh. all right. So uh you wanna you wanna take us out there, Jer? Um yeah. on overhead athlete slash throwing athlete worker, you know, that kind of uh weightlift, overhead weightlifter even. And I don't want to be too biased to just the thrower. I think we get too hung up sometimes and just boxing and carp, carp, carp these types of uh, people or athletes, but you know, for there is some specificity to it, but there is some generalization to these types of uh, people that are patients that we should be uh, treating and looking at. Uh, we talked about, you know, evaluation um, you know, what kind of things are you doing for, for treatment? What are you, what are you looking for? Um, without trying to be too cookie cutter or, or you know, general, there,
0: yeah. Um, you know, based off of what we talked about or kind of alluded to the previous episode, sure everybody should listen in. Um, is you know, I like to look at it not purely from where the pain is. Uh, we always mention here that you know, pain is a liar, um, and I think that's especially true when it comes to typically shoulder and elbow pain or the classic, uh, you know, biceps region forearm pains. I think that's even more prevalent where those areas typically aren't the pain generators. Uh, so I like to try and look at things from, you know, the whole body. Um, but definitely, as we mentioned before in the previous episodes, try and treat, I try and look at things proximally. Now I think, of uh, you know, I find more value in treating things, you know, again, from the proximal source, more of the spine um, or shoulders of uh, red, like scapula. Uh, I know, you know, we always kind of talk about our evolution as therapists, uh, me previously and that sort of stuff. When I got a thrower or, you know, I see a lot of Olympic weightlifters and those sort of things, a lot of the, you know, treatment was guided towards that shoulder, uh a lot of you know joint mobs you know glenohumeral humeral joint moves. um i'd spend a lot of time there do a lot of cuff strengthening really kind of hope for the best uh well was hope for best still got some good results um but you know how long it took or how many of those shitty uh things were going well and kind of they come back in and they'd be like yeah i had a went back into training kind of got, pissed off again. Um, sort of moments that those, those tear me up every time. I hate those when they come in and they just say that I'm like, son of a bitch, what, you know, why did they do this? And, uh, you know, it's probably trained almost too locally. Um, so yeah, you know, picking back off of the examination, I'll, you know, start my examination with the cervical or the cervical thoracic spine. And a lot of what I do there, um, you know, just for me, you know, neuromodulation or modulation of pain perspective. I'll do some techniques there a lot. Often the times, uh, usually on the painful side, uh, if you're doing a good job of examining the the cervical and thoracic spine, even further down into T spine, I think I used to stop down at like, you know, T3, T4, um, you'll find a lot of pain in those right in the, the UPAs. So that's the, you know, posterior to anterior mobilization of the, uh, of the transverse process, um, so really kind of diving into doing some of that. Um, I think ma- manipulations just to kind of you know calm things down. I had a s- discussion with a student is purely the student was only treating things if they found an impairment or if it reproduced things. Um, yeah, I think I went down that route. Um, I think the idea of we should only treat impairments versus, you know, asymmetries versus just having the idea, can it make it better? Um, is it okay to treat things that don't necessarily have a objective impairment? Um, and I'm finding some value with that of, you know, what does it do to their pain? Uh, so the, yeah, they may have great rotation, you know, uh, cervical side to side, um full range of motion but can i do a technique and can that help their pain when they go up and overhead can i mm-hmm. give them the confidence to it's like oh crap you did a cervical technique thoracic technique where you had me do some self-mobilizations and now i can get overhead without some pain I'm like okay great there may not be in a particular impairment but certainly helped um so that's kind of where i am starting to go towards my evolution um you know, starting to treat things and just looking, what can I do? What additive effects can I do to really just change their pain and then get them going? Um, especially for these more non-specific type of pains, versus obviously things are a little bit different when we have a thrower that has a labral tear and it's post-op or a UCL tear and it's post-op. I'll still do these things to help out their pain um but obviously it's a little bit of a different process you get the healing of those tissues and everything like that so um you know from there start to kind of transition towards you know checking out nerve mobility and maybe doing some nerve uh techniques as well that we mentioned on the show and then i think there's a lot of value if you look at a lot of the research of you know, elbows, uh, UCL injuries, labral injuries, a lot goes into the scapula versus purely, you know, going into, you know, rotator cuff. I know a lot of us, you know, you look at a lot of your roots, your throws 10 and that sort of stuff. And some components of it. Uh, but a lot, I think I did, especially early on was like, Oh, they have a difficulty of external rotation. Let's just keep doing a ton of banded ERs um, and do that for days. So, you know, that's kind of, you know, I guess a gist of how things are going. Um, probably go more into depth, but realize that was probably taking a little bit long. But Brandon, how about you? Let's 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 move on to you while I get a sit. Oh, good man.
1: You uh, you said something about um, and I guess a student or an intern you were working with that was um, you know, trained too locally or even you know, which is yeah. good. Experiment looking based. at impairment based right yeah. and. Only treating if it recreated their symptoms, mm-hmm. uh, which is good in the beginning. Yeah. You know, uh, it's a good evolution, especially for someone that young to, to you know even have that presence of mind. Um, you know, as as we've evolved, and it's funny because we've had uh, this conversation it's coming up now in our podcast it came up uh, earlier this week on our mentorship platform, uh, and I had a conversation with uh, the fellow I'm, I'm uh, training, uh, you know, past couple of weeks. Um, something called a uh, com- uh, comparable sign, a comparable sign in an appropriate structure, right? Meaning that there is a structure relevant to the presentation, but it does not reproduce the said symptom um, of that patient. But it does recreate some type of pain, and I think oftentimes that gets overlooked, mm. um, especially with joint stuff or even uh, even neurodynamics. It's like okay, there's an impairment. There's something going on, but it doesn't recreate that person's pain, so we kind of, you know, dismiss it uh, instead of paying, you know, more attention to it. Especially those patients that don't things aren't really adding up, uh, and they have, like you said, diagnosis of biceps tendon or some type of strain, sprain, and you're probably doing soft tissue to it, right? Because we we're thinking, soft, you know, a sprain of the soft t- uh, of the muscle, we need to do like a massage or something like that. So. Yeah. Smashing. What would Sammy's or something, right? He's um, smashing with the ball. Right. So a lot of, I've, you know, had baseball players and lacrosse, not, not lacrosse um, crossfitters using lacrosse ball, you know, always on their upper trap, always on the rhomboid, trying to just mash that stuff out. Um, and, you know, you do a median nerve glide or own nerve glide and they're tight, but it doesn't reproduce their, their pain. Uh, per se, or you maybe you, you you do a mobilization and it doesn't reproduce their pain, but it reproduces some type of wonkiness or achiness um, there. You also talked about you know you would go down a T T four, right? And that's that's good, right? I've done this too. We've all kind of done it. Regional dependence. Oh, it's shoulder. I checked out the neck. I checked out the T spine. Great, but I've noticed going further down that T spine is huge, especially into that lower and middle section. You know. T6, 7, 8, even 10, that's where you get some stuff. Cause if they're not, or if they have too much lumbar extension or TL junction extension, uh, or lower thoracic extension, that's where they're kind of getting hit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we don't have videos of, of, you know, a bunch of exercises to show people what, you know, what we do and how we treat, but general concepts we could try and go over, you know, I, I think as therapists, we need to not and we talked about you know minkin not minkin uh we talked about um minkins adam minkins and, and chad cook and you know these these you know left left ring and white ringed and you know manual therapy and exercise we need to be able to to put these together and you know greg cook was uh was very paramount you know at least in the in the late 2000s or early 2010s with you know the movement analysis and we need to begin to kind of look at that like you know, whatever athlete you get, we got to get movement fundamentals first, we need to train them, you know, go back to the basics, mm-hmm. train them at whatever we need to, to get them to just move well, mm-hmm. then we need that functional performance or that strengthening before we go to skill. I think, I think too often, we, we want that tricky or, or trendy new exercise that's going to really mimic what they're doing. And a lot of times, it, it, it's not that that we need, we need to go back to the basics and clean some stuff up. You know whether it's using manual therapy followed by some self mobilizations followed by some you know activation or, or motor control exercises and then you can build up to the fun stuff um, afterwards. And if you're dealing with a high level athlete, chances are they can do the skill stuff fine. Mm-hmm. They're lacking you know some of the the first floor basement first floor second floor type stuff that mm-hmm. um, is causing their their pitching to be wonky. Not the fact that they're a bad pitcher. If you have somebody who's not the world's greatest athlete chances are you don't need to make them a better uh, you don't need to work on throwing you need to work on making them a better athlete and that starts from the bottom making them move better uh i have some things here you know some some articles by uh yule hul uh we have reynolds we have blackburns um you know articles that came out in the early 2000s that really look at muscle activation granted there's flaws in them Mm -hmm. but there's different you know uh, they give different examples or, or different exercises that have better activation of not only the rotator cuff muscles, but the periscapular muscles, mm-hmm. uh, and even, you know, switching up and doing things in weight bearing, doing T's in a quadruped position. So there's some closed chain, uh, uh approximation going on there, um, or, or, you know, you're doing it in a plank position, mm-hmm. uh, you have your feet up in a, in a box in a plank position. So now there's more weight on there. You know, mm-hmm. treating, you know, we talked about last time, maybe looking at balance or looking regionally and throwers, maybe they have, you know, crappy, you know, pelvic control yep. and their hips just shooting out and trying Dellenberg and they're they're kind of falling out to the side, it's causing the arm to to kind of flare out. And then their their balls probably mm-hmm. either flare out, you know, to the right if they're right handed, or they're trying to overcompensate and break that. You know, wrist faster, and they're they're coming across their body, and that ball is shooting to the left a little bit. Mm-hmm. So you know, being able to understand these things, and again, you know, our job, you know, not ne- is not necessarily to do the sport specific stuff, but get them ready to do the sport specific stuff, mm-hmm. and then you know, you're, you're passing them off to uh, to you know their coach or you know whoever they're they're working with there. Um, another thing that was good, and I, I used to use a lot more. I don't use uh, as much now, but it definitely helped. You know, clean up my thinking and at least give me some type of standard when I was uh, rehabbing these athletes was the upper extremity wide balance test. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's basically the FMS for the upper body, um, which was good. It gave me just some nut ways to objectify what I was doing yes. uh, to help see an athlete's progression to help see their, their, their strength, their coordination, their endurance and things like that. Yeah. So, you know, if you haven't uh, looked into that guys, definitely uh, play around with the upper extremity wide balance test again, you know, are, are there some limitations? Yeah, but at least it gives you, uh, you know, a box or some type of framework to to begin to look into to help the evolution of uh, your thought process and, and treatment.
0: Yeah. Uh, I also like to use the upper extremity, upper extremity like close connect chain test, uh, it's pretty much you put two strips of tape about shoulder width support, and they have to go with one hand tap to another. Um, go tap one tape, tap the other tape, and they in a plank position. Um, that's really good. There's some normative uh, values for that for actually uh, throwing athletes, and then I think it goes into um, position specific uh, what like pitchers should get what versus uh, more of your field players. Um, and then the one arm shot put test, uh, I think that's a good one for like overall power development and that sort of stuff um, and how much they should be better than obviously they're not involved. So, yeah, those are all great tests. Um, and that's, that's, you know, the main thing is being able to, I always take value of what the patient says, but also make sure objectively they're improving and because most, most patients will constantly say, "You hey, ask them, how are you doing? Oh, yeah, I feel a little bit better uh it's like a little bit better i always tell my students that means uh probably probably about neutral um you know they're just they see you trying hard so they're always gonna feel bad yeah exactly especially when you're like experimenting with things and that sort of stuff so um you know getting your good objective measurements um also especially for those individuals that uh almost need to see the I guess uh, what Toko always says, proof in the pudding. So if you're showing them, oh, well, you were here and now you're here, oh, they start to say, oh, I guess I am improving, uh, especially for those chronic pain patients that are just kind of used to their pain and their levels of pain and that sort of stuff. Um, But yeah, Brian, you made up some uh, like good points uh, that I kind of want to talk about. I actually want to branch back into uh, something about neural dynamics and um, some other conversations and we we're talking about, you know, you know, just doing something to see if it makes a difference. Um, like normal the values of like neurodynamics, the classic thing of uh that was kind of see or kind of blew off with certain things, especially in throwers who have to, you know, get all the way back into their pitch beyond uh the human, you know, we're taught 90 degrees is normal for a normal human being of external rotation at 90 uh, degrees of abduction, the pitcher's going all the way back, um, you know, so that they're pretty much, of they're flat, they're 180 degrees. Um, you know, what is like, you know, that normative value, like a lot of times I would just go and say, Hey, I test it out. And it's like, okay, they get to a point and they get to a point. And they're like, oh, nothing reproduced, and it's uh, it's uh, I guess didn't cause any pain of any sorts, and it seems pretty even both sides. Is that is that okay? I you know, or is it you know, is there something that we should expect with our neural dynamics? Let's say just like the median nerve, which I demonstrated. You know, are we expected to get all the way that all the way to the end range? Um, is that something we should shoot for? or do we have this pure mindset? Of we just want symmetry both sides and that's good enough and, and keep blowing through. So, um, this conversation I had with a clinician and that sort of stuff is, you know, I think, you know, you know, we have normal values of like knees and hips and range motions and somewhat of strength. Uh, why not neural dynamics? Why are we just okay with symmetry versus maybe more mobility? Um, kind of uh, just a thought process and that sort yeah, of stuff.
1: I, I mean, if, if you look at the, um, you know, what is the, the as at least range of motion wise, right. Is um, lacking 10 degrees of elbow extension. Yeah. You know, I, I'm looking at each joint. I'm looking at, you know, what the neck does and it may not be a pure side bend. It may be a little shrug, mm-hmm. but they're asymptomatic, right. They, Oh, I feel nothing, but I feel their shoulder or their upper trap, just mm-hmm. kind of shoot well. up. So I'm looking at that. I'm looking at the wrist as well. I'm looking to see if maybe the shoulder kind of shoots forward, you know, can we measure these things? Probably not. And I guess it's a feel thing. And if you don't know what to feel or what to look for, you're going to say it sucks or it's not accurate. Granted. Yeah. But there is a gray area and that's where we operate sometimes Mm -hmm. and that we have to be okay in operating there. Um, But I'm looking, especially a thrower. I mean, forget, 100, 110, I'm, I want them here, and I'm loading, and I'm tractioning down, I haven't side bent, like, I should be able to load that up. And I was actually having a conversation with, um, you know, Anthony, a fellow I'm treating, uh training uh, yesterday. And I'm going to make an email about this, actually. So it's funny, it came up again today, because he had a, and we've had, you know, several conversations about neurodynamics, and you know, how I use it. Them and I use them more. And I think they should be more integrated and in not only our treatment but our evaluation. And we're talking about, you know, we've talked about our evaluation and I'm kind of a little bit more free flowing in mind. You know, he's more linear with his, which is fine. Um, But what he said, he's, he, he's like, I had a like my third CrossFit athlete and they were all jammed up and they had some anterior shoulder pain. And, you know, he screened at the neck. And then the next thing he did, he's like, you know what, I'm just going to go look at neurodynamics right now. And he did it and it cleared him up. And we were talking about kind of just like, you know, his thought process and, you know, how he felt finally, you know, kind of comfortable to, to, you know, jump forward and with that sooner rather than later, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, instead of just waiting uh, longer. Cause uh, I think part of, um, you know, clinical decision-making is that pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you may have your linear uh, thought process of things you need to check, but if you know, Hey, I've had X amount of overhead athletes and this tends to be a problem area, Mm-hmm. You know, move that to the front of the line instead of, you know, making an eighth on your, your things to check. Let me just bump that up to, you know, second or third and, and check that out. So, you know, I, I definitely think neurodynamics is a big piece. I, I've definitely had. And if you think about the mechanics of, you know, you got throwing like that and they're just, especially if they're having pain, they're compensating, they're turning their head and pulling through here, tractioning all these muscles in that upper quarter region, you have, you know, people snatching or jerking all this weight head through the window is how they're coached, which, if you look, just looks awful. Like, look what's happening through here. It's all being traction and stretched and just a ton of load there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, they get this like knife like pain through their upper trap or their anterior delt and they're just trying to mash it out and no mm-hmm. real success. You know, I want pliability within yep. that nerve. Um, I want to be able to go up to 110, 120 and add you know, my overpressure distally and proximally and crank on that, you know, nervous system or whatever other structures are being yeah. handled there. And if they can't handle my five, 10, 15, 20 pounds of overpressure, are they going to be able to handle all of the forces that That's are awesome. compressive forces when they're throwing a pitch That's or when awesome. they're snatching 200 some odd pounds? Uh, you know, it's something to think about. You know, yes. v- or, you know, a construction worker who has a, you know, holding sheetrock up with one hand and, and drilling in with the other hand, uh, or someone maybe who's using a jackhammer, all those forces that are going through the body at, at one time, mm-hmm. uh, instead of just looking black and white at whatever structure. So I'm always, to answer your question, I know I kind of went around in circles there. That's
0: great. To answer Perfect.
1: your question, I- I'm always looking for pliability. If they have no range of motion, you know, limitations, the elbow, You know, extra valgus, extra varus. You know, just lacking extension. Um, You know, no, you know, wrist fracture. You know, nothing that's impeding joint range of motion. There shouldn't be, you know, you know, um, lack of motion there. Mm -hmm. At that point, we're we're not, you know, not looking at symmetry. They need that that pliability Mm -hmm. through that. And then a lot of times, you work on that, and then their their muscles calm down, and then you get more joint play. And then you can do some other things uh, by dressing, you know, the neurodynamic system first. So uh, yeah, huge stuff. I I think neurodynamics is definitely underlooked in this population and muscle tightness and soft tissue and cupping and even dry needling is overused Mm -hmm. in this type of population. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I I look back, I think you had brought up one of Mike Reynolds uh, podcasts or something and you know, uh, I think they were talking about manipulation. Man. And, uh one of the guys on their staff, I think, uses manipulation a little bit more. But, you know, Mike Reynolds, like, no, I, I just mainly do soft tissue. You know, I find a lot of these players have more soft tissue strains and sprains. You know, I'm not treating his, his patient population, but just kind of hearing that and, and you know, seeing what I see, um, you know, I, I think, you know, using some more joint based and neurodynamics might, you know, lead to you utilizing less soft tissue for these people, um, you know, and, and better results or faster results too.
0: Yeah. Um, I think a good thing to test out. I mean, again, I mentioned on shows, big soft tissue guy before I came in or when I came into the profession and everything like that. But the classic is, you know, most people have, their hypertonicity or trigger point, especially for our overhead athletes, you know, especially the CrossFitters, Olympic lifters, get into their traps and, um, you know, levator, you know, mid-scapular region. And before you start going to town on them, try some neurodynamics. And then you, again, it could be mid-scapular, something like that. And you think that's too far away, just try it. Take the two 30 seconds to floss it 15, 20 times or whatever it may be and then go and repalpate. palpate um, You know, I like to use sometimes, not as much as I used to, but using the pain pressure threshold um, algometer and just, all right, get an objective measurement. It took 20 pounds or 20 newtons of force to piss off that trigger point, floss it 20 times away from the area and uh, come back to it. Um, and it's up to 60 all right, well, I didn't have to go and annihilate the person with my elbows or cupping and that sort of stuff. Um, and it made a huge difference. So I agree that, you know, I believe it's underutilized and that sort of stuff. And yeah, think, I think a lot of what amps up the nervous system is obviously stress. Uh, we talk about that with like radiculopathies, fibromyalgia, all these sort of things and high stress. And we think, oh, it's, oh, you're stressed at work. We got the guy holding up sheetrock and having to take care of four kids, yada, yada, yada. But what about the stress within the sport as well? Uh, you know, the neuromuscular stressors of, you know, mm-hmm. snatching 200 pounds and holding it over your head so it doesn't crush your head um, in a brief, you know, less than three second moment, it's very taxing to the system. Uh, so you got to imagine that what, it wreaks havoc on that nervous system. Same with, you know, throwing a pitch at, you know, 6,000 degrees revolution, that's, that's a ton of stress, physical stress on the, on the nervous system. So more often than not, then, you know, it may need some treatment towards that area. Um, So that's something I see, um, you know, those, those, especially those heavy lifters, you know, high speed sports, um, you know, I think the stress of just the sport themselves, uh you know ramps up the system. And you know, doing I like to kind of hit the joint first, which seems to have some neurophysiological effects, and then kind of get into the nerves. And then sometimes I'll combine them. I'm finding a lot of benefit of combining them both at the same time. We've talked about that. Um but I think you brought up some great points um and from an assessment perspective and from a treatment perspective. Uh the classic uh you know burpees uh, hurt or uh, uh, you know if it's burpees or overhead uh, push-ups or um, stands uh you know we think oh it's especially for the wrist we think it's like oh it's purely you know them pressing down on that think about that position I and mean, that's that right there fully you know extended elbow extended wrist uh extended that's you know your median nerve tension position a little different than the classic testing position, but, um, it's just modified for that sport. So, you know, it's definitely something to take a look at and treat, you know, it takes again, 20 seconds to floss at 10 to 20 times. So it doesn't hurt to test it out and see if it makes impact, but, um, Brandon, you know, for other areas we, you you mentioned, um, what are some, I guess, common trends or anything like that maybe even further down the chain that you see as a problem that needs to be addressed. You talked about some things about, you know, getting to the basics uh, for a lot of these elite athletes, but anything you see, let's say outside of the shoulder thoracic, cervical, um, you know, arm complex, anything that you commonly see uh, between these athletes and maybe something that they have issues with that need to be treated well in the care of a physical therapist.
1: Yeah, uh, I will, but just, I want to say something. You, you mentioned trigger points and that uh, reminded me to uh, our neurodynamics class and in and, and creating the neurodynamics course, um, there's something called Ags, right? Abnormal impulse generated sites, uh, right? And this is, this actually causes or contributes or leads to in some way, shape or form or capacity trigger points. Mm-hmm. All right? Trigger points are defined as top band and, and there's um, physiological abnormalities. Typically there's the, that environment's more acidic. There's more gags in that area, a, a bunch of other mechanical chemical um, and thermal stimuli or, you know, that are, are contributing to it. But um, you know, what's making up or causing those trigger points is those AGs, right? And that is basically nerve generated or ger- nerve generated impulses caused by damage to the nerve and it doesn't have to be severe damage, just micro damage, um, or disease causing some type of demyelination, uh, you know, throughout that nerve and that area is trying to kind of regenerate. And that's, what's causing what they call that dysynthetic pain or the, those trigger points in that area. All right. So, you know, how do we treat the nerve? Mm-hmm. It's nerve flossing neurodynamics. That's, you know, the only thing we can do, but that's, that's going to you know, add mobility to it, it's going to add oxygen to it, it's going to add movement to it, and other biochemicals uh, to help heal that area and clean that area up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, just to put perspective, if you're out there in the camp, you know, treating trigger points, well, ask yourself, what are trigger points? And it actually is coming from, you know, ascending and descending from that dorsal ganglion in that nerve, in that peripheral nerve. Um, But to answer your question, I'd say the biggest thing I I see, especially in the high school, college athlete, uh, even actually, you know, the the CrossFitter uh, is, you know, poor um, glute strength, core strength, uh, motor control, if you want to know about that. And, And throwers, it's single leg balance. It's being able to stand on one leg and not only bounce there, but now generate force in a concentric isometric and then eccentric, you know, portion, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so I'm looking a lot at the single leg aspect, the half kneeling aspect or a split stance aspect uh, and and seeing where that, that patient is. And a lot of times that knees flaring out and to uh, you know, a combined external abduction It could be that pelvis is kicking out to the right and there's causing for more internal rotation slash valgus. Uh, So I look a lot more into that that core control, core region. And by core, I don't mean abs. I don't mean six pack. I mean, you know, obliques, pelvis, glutes, adductors, Mm -hmm. you know, where that force is being transmitted, absorbed in and transmitted from the lower extremity to the upper extremity. You know, and that's what our pelvis is for or SIJ region even as well. I think we talked about it. It's to be able to absorb those forces from the lower extremity and transmit them to the upper extremity or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I spend a lot more time with my athletes in a half kneeling position, chops and lifts, single leg with a knee drive, maybe adding some type of perturbation there. uh, But I need them to have good isometric control at that knee and femur while everything else is kind of moving. So uh, that's what I'm I'm looking at a lot.
0: Great. Yeah, no, I think that's huge. Um, I think it's missed a lot in the college and high school strength and conditioning. Uh, it typically lets us put some weights on the bar and, you know, get them stronger, which, you know, you know certain things like the deadlift is great core exercises, but doesn't exactly you know, link up to their sport as well. You know, as Brandon mentioning single leg stance, you know, the pitcher needs to be able to balance on their stride leg. It needs to balance on their, on their stance leg as well. Um I like to look at like, you know, control of things like, yeah, can they even like take it another step is like, can they balance on one leg and lift their knee to their chest? And you'd be amazed that they can't do that just in a, you know, clinic setting up, can you lift your knee to your chest? Um, and they don't have that control. But, you know, if you look at all, take a, you know, Google search of, you know, all the amazing pictures that you've ever can think of and their knee is almost at their throat uh, when they're doing that, but a lot of them can't. So it's, is it, you know, more often than not, you know, especially at the high school college level, you know, most athletes are fairly mobile at that point. They're not advanced-aged athletes of any sorts. They should have the mobility for the most part. Sometimes they don't, and then we have to go clear some things out, but they don't have the adequate control for that sort of stuff. So doing things in those positions, as Brandon said, half-kneeling, I think there's a lot of value into that. Um, you know, looking into things into the ankle as well, from a mobility standpoint, especially, obviously, dorsiflexion. Um, but also from a control as well. Um, I feel like a lot of, you know, training programs are obviously, all right, shoulder care is great. Um, doing some things, you know, address the scapula and, you know, the cuff muscles that, you know, it's important, but if the whole kinetic chain is messed up due to poor core and glute control or mm-hmm. strength, you know, you know, you're, you're not going to get very far. They're still going to develop injuries and, And and all those sort of problems. So, you know, it's time to look at the whole kinetic chain. So, um, there are some great strength coaches that do that, and I love them. And that's those are the ones I refer to. But um, a lot of times, by the time they're injured in the clinic, it's time to, you know, educate the the athlete. Hey, we need to do all these sort of things. You need to be, maybe take it accountable for yourself to make sure Mm -hmm. you're getting these sort of things, especially from a, you know, a balance control standpoint. That's you know most you know strength coaches they want to add some weight build up some resilience and that sort of stuff the control sort of stuff uh, a lot of that can be done at the home front so yeah i, I t- totally agree there bren awesome uh anything else that you uh you
1: see or like to do with with these overhead athletes and, and maybe um either in your maybe when you post this you can put some videos i, I know you're very good at uh recording a lot of your or your patients and athletes um doing all sorts of all sorts of stuff out outside the box things. So um I don't know if you want to do that or if there's just any kind of last kind of parting you know interventions to, to really uh impart on these people or anything that you see that's uh that kind of should just drive home that message.
0: Yeah. I meant the uh what we kind of talked about and what you uh, did a great job explaining in the first episode of this was you know hammer home education it's still surprising how many like i got a um just turned 15 uh but he throw 80 miles per hour um you know he's pretty you know steadily um he you know how many people don't quite understand like the pitch count and those sort of things so a lot of it you can't trust you know everybody else, uh, that supports the athlete per se. Uh, sometimes you need to be able to, you know, educate them. Like, listen, you got injured now and, you know, maybe it wasn't so bad or whatever. Maybe, maybe it was bad. You still have a long career is, you know, throw in that education. Like, listen, you need to take upon yourself of, you know, respecting what your body can handle and the demands and pitch counts and, you know, overall or CrossFit or, Per, you know people training and that sort of stuff i still people i have people you know training five six days per week and they're just in it for wellness and they feel like crap and those sort of things and their shoulders are fried and they're getting all these shoulder injuries so definitely throwing in um you know that education piece is obviously the most important part you know seeing what their goals are and um you know making sure they're well understood of you know what's what's needed from them um and that way they can you know again take it upon herself. I, I have a person who's in a gym and they the head gym person you know pushes their their clients which is great but pushes them you know sign up for all these events and do all these sort of things train outside of this and you know it works when you're a highly tuned elite athlete it doesn't work when you're 50 60 years old and haven't worked out in the last 30 years um so sometimes again it takes a takes athlete you know having to almost defend themselves to a degree so i try and hammer that home make sure they're they're well educated on that and then you know especially during those last phases and that sort of stuff um you know we you know we can go into the weeds about like return to throwing programs and everything like that Uh, there's some articles that kind of outline that it's a bit lengthy at times. Um, but you know, we do need a challenge to athlete, obviously. So it's not like, oh, they did the rehab process. We got the range of motion. Great. And then as soon as they went back to throwing, they felt like shit again. Um, I like to try and do as many things as I can to try and simulate the sport. Um, the motion, it's not the whole session. It's probably one exercise per session, where I'm integrating like some throwing motions, uh, challenging them, trying to make it fun and engaging, uh, but, you know, still doing the things I need to do. So getting them in the pitching position, doing some rhythmic stabilizations, uh, having them pitch um, or getting the, you know, the barbell over their head and kind of adding some perturbations with that. So it's just some things more from a psychological standpoint. I think I like to do that. Is it, per se, evidence-based, uh, probably not. Uh, I haven't really seen too much of that, but you know, it helps people. You can tell when they leave, they feel excited about things because their brain's able to kind of link that, they this is close to what they previously had painful pain with. And we've got some sort of modified version of it and it helped them out. So, or they weren't have able to have any issues with it. So um, that's kind of what I like to do. I think there's some benefit to that um you know again i don't know if it's from a research standpoint just something i kind of developed and people appreciate but that's me um anything from you brandon anything else
1: yeah i'd say uh especially this is more so post-op hours, um but it can even be you know and just someone who's been shut down for a while uh uh, but definitely post op, like labor rotator cuff, things like that. You know, just because they're six months, eight months, 10 months out, and, and they've, you know, hit other marketers and, you know, they're looking good strength wise. And even like you, Jared, you put them through, you know, the bit of the ringer in the office, you know, and they go and they throw, you know, according to their program, or even if you throw it within the office, if you have, you know, a bullpen session or, or the space to kind of throw in your office, how, you understanding as a clinician and also being able to then educate your patient of, you know, it's not going to be perfect. There's going to be some soreness there. You know, there's going to be some new adaptations. You're not going to have the same rate of motion you did right off the bat. That's going to take months of throwing again, Mm -hmm. because typically if you had a labral tear, they probably tightened you up a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, think about it. That capsule was cut into, think of all the proprioceptors that are in that capsule that were injured and now need to regrow and then be retrained um you have to let's say they tightened you up a little bit a lot of surgeons um will kind of over tighten you a little bit knowing that you're gonna get that back in time when you go back to throwing Mm. Uh, so they kind of anticipate okay if i tighten this up a little bit more he'll get it back when he starts throwing versus just putting it together you know let's say they do this and then it gets stretched out again they're going to overlap it a little bit so it stretches out to hopefully what it was you know, that's, that's me demonstrating. That's probably not what's really happening, <laughs> but understanding that there's, there's going to be, you know, a lot of these surgeries or a year rehab, two years, a year and a half before that athlete starts to begin to be normal or feel normal, even though they're going back to sports sooner. So understand as long as it's not, you know, sharp pain or, or, you know, some type of intractable pain that there might be, you know, a day or two of soreness that they need to not rush. Uh, back and understand that, you know, this is, the, those tissues need to be kind of restretched and re, um, re-educated um, and build up that tolerance and kind of robustness around that area.
0: Yeah, I think, um, I think it's super important for the people to understand and especially if it's, hopefully if it's not, but you know, I get a couple people people on their second go around with like labrum. Um, and they're one, one step away from a ladder J procedure, uh, which definitely they'll mess around with that. They're going to tighten you up. Um, you know, sometimes, especially in those early phases, I'll allow some tightness, um, again, especially if it's more the dislocation type. I think the, um, Have the article at hand, but what we're trying to shoot for is like about you know, especially once they start getting into the throwing phases, about 130 degrees of passive external rotation. Um, before they start to get in, obviously, they're going way past that when they actually actively throw, but anything less than that, um, or like in that 110 to 130 range. Um, if you're working with someone and they're just barely getting the 90 and you're saying go throw, uh, that's probably probably too tight so you want to stay within that range um in order to get them to uh to throw comfortably and get all the way back i believe yeah 130 is is the sweet spot um post-op uh, labral repair but um that way i believe and then there's some research about your maximum external rotation um and the larger the difference between passive versus your maximum leads to more injury. So if you get to like 180 and you're sitting at one or sitting at 90 or one ten, that large difference can lead to more injury. So if you're at 130, which is pretty much what we can probably push someone passively, um, you know that's probably the sweet spot for anybody out there. But again, it takes time. I'm not going to push that you know week one, week two, week three and stretch out that fresh you know repair and we'll let it happen over time and then make sure right before they're ready to throw that's when i want to make sure to get that last little check okay we're good to go and you know it's going to take some time to kind of you know break it in in a sense so yeah
1: yeah breaking in is a good good
0: analogy awesome all right well uh in closing remarks uh, any announcements there brandon Uh, yeah
1: we have um you know, it's, what is it, uh, end of July, early August. We, we got, you know, four courses, uh, coming up in, in the fall, uh, September's for cervical thoracic, which, uh, will, will cover a lot of what we talked about, especially in the examination and treatment part, uh, involving the neck, T-spine, neurodynamics, even shoulder girdle, um, October's, uh, lumbopelvic, which is down at, at Jeremy's place in Glassboro, uh, in November, we've got our, um, extremity hvla course and then december we got the big spinal manipulation course so um, hopefully we see some of you guys out there we also have our uh, mentorship program um, which can be found on, online any questions or want to know more about it please feel free to uh, contact or reach out to me and jeremy we'd be more than happy to uh to fill you in and give you a little demo about it
0: awesome well thanks for listening everyone it was an awesome episode and uh yeah cheers cheers guys i rip this one